Hello, everyone, and welcome to Culturally Relevant, a podcast about film, television, art, and culture. I'm David Chen, and today I'm speaking with Jen Yamato, a film reporter and critic at the Los Angeles Times. Jen, thanks for joining me today. Dave, thank you so much for having me. This is the second of two conversations about the Oscars that are going to be published on Culturally Relevant. Earlier this week, I spoke with writer Turhaka Love about the slap heard around the world when Will Smith slapped Chris Rock. I really enjoyed that conversation. Be sure to check it out. Today, I'm chatting with Jen Yamato about a different kind of controversy relating to the Oscars, the scenes of anti-Asian racism that occur in Paul Thomas Anderson's film, Licorice Pizza. Now, why am I talking about this given that it is now days after the Oscars and the award season is over and Licorice Pizza is out on video on demand. Two reasons. Number one, Jen has just published a very thoughtful piece about the matter over at the Los Angeles Times. Uh, I would urge everyone to read it. The headline is Licorice Pizza Made Asians a Punchline and the Fallout is Bigger Than the Oscars, end quote. And the second reason is that I want to be done talking about this. I want to be done thinking about Licorice Pizza and about this topic and this is the conversation I have chosen to exercise all of my feelings around this. Uh, so f- congratulations, Jen. You've, uh, th- this is the, the status that you've attained. Is, um, you're part of the exorcism <laughs> conversation. I'm so honored. And I hope well that it should. does the same for me. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about what actually happened. And I'm going to play a little clip from the movie. And we're going to talk a little bit. Like, here, here are the actual facts of the matter. So Licorice Pizza, newest movie by writer-director Paul Thomas Anderson. Uh, and in the two-hour uh, long movie, two-plus-hour-long movie, there's a couple of minutes that have riled some folks up, including myself. Um, I'm going to actually quote from your article because you describe it quite uh, aptly. Quote, the controversial vignettes unfold early on in Anderson's rambling ode to the San Fernando Valley of his youth. Actor John Michael Higgins, playing Jerry Frick, the real-life owner of the Japanese restaurant The Mikado, speaks to his wife, Miyoko, played by Yumi Mizui, and later his second wife, Kimiko, played by Megumi Anjo, in overly exaggerated Japanese-accented English. Defenders of the film counter that exposing Frick's racism is the point. Its critics say his wives, two of the only non-white characters in the film, are robbed of agency and are themselves stereotypes that play into anti-Asian tropes, end quote. So... Let's let's actually listen to what this is. The following is a supercut of the instances in which this occurs. Um, so what you're going to hear is two scenes. The first scene occurs uh, when Jerry Frick is buying a newspaper ad. And then there is a second instance in which the main character in Licorice Pizza, Cooper Hoffman and Alana Kane, encounter Jerry Frick again at his restaurant. Warning, you are about to hear some racist shit. So here it comes. I'm going to play the clip right now. Oh, Miyoko. How you think of this? What do you think of item for newspaper? Ryori yo, ryori. Oh, oh, Yoko-san. I think the cuisine is not mentioned. She's wondering if we mentioned the cuisine. And the non-gourmet alike. What do you think of that? <laughs> Much better talking about the cuisine than the waitresses. Thank you. Oh, fantastic. Really appreciate it, really. Anita. Thank you so mm-hmm. much. Oh. Hi, Miyoko. Oh, no, no, Miyoko's gone. This is my new wife, Kimiko. <laughs> Hi, Kimiko. Pretty as a picture. Uh, Kimiko, uh, what do you think of this waterbed? Mm-hmm. What did she just say? It's hard to tell. I don't speak Japanese. So in Jen Yamada's piece, uh, she goes on to then explain some of the reaction to this. Uh, again, very well. Quote, although interpretations of its intent vary, Licorice Pizza drew a small but vocal outcry as it rolled out in theaters and prompted articles in The Hollywood Reporter, The Atlantic, and NBC. Uh, side note, I-, I know about this because I think I was part of at least one of those articles. Uh, when Anderson has addressed it, his responses have been viewed as attempts to sidestep any concerns. In February, well into its Oscar campaign and after months of discourse, IndieWire's Eric Cohn asked the filmmaker about complaints over the Frick character. And here's what Paul Thomas Anderson had to say, quote, it's kind of like, huh? I don't know if it's a huh with a dot, dot, dot. It's funny because it's hard for me to relate to. I don't know. I'm lost when it comes to that. To me, I'm not sure what they, you know, what is the problem? The problem is that he's an idiot saying stupid shit. End quote. So 
that's the clip. That's the reaction to it. That's Paul Thomas's response to the uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's response to the reaction to it. Jen Yamato, let's start by talking about the movie itself. And I'm, I'm curious, like when you first watched Licorice Pizza, mm. what was your reaction to the movie overall? What was your reaction to those scenes? Yeah, my personal experience as a movie was like I was I was vibing with it. I was actually really excited when they were filming it uh, here in the LA area in the Valley, and I even was so looking forward to it that I went and drove by the set as they were filming with a friend. So it was something that I was looking forward to, and I would say I was vibing with it. I was picking up what it was putting down. And then we get to these record scratch scenes with John Michael Higgins. And it's almost like instinctively as an Asian woman who has experienced plenty of microaggressions along these lines before, I I just like instinctively recoiled and um, I didn't see it in an audience with, with people around. So I don't know how that would have amplified that feeling or made me more self-conscious of my Asian-ness while watching that scene. But I would say that was my initial like in the moment reaction. And then as soon as the first restaurant scene happened, um, I'm kind of just waiting for there to be a point to it. Cause I, I am so open to the idea that an, example of racism can be used as a demonstrative example within the text of a piece of art. Um, Then we get to the second scene where Jerry Frick introduces his new wife, who's pretty as a picture. And I just sort of like felt it in my gut and it was hard to shake, but um, that's why I really appreciate thoughtful film criticism because I wanted to talk about it with other people, other film critics and journalists afterwards. I wanted to know how other people viewed those scenes in the context of the, of the whole story. That's what's so great about the article is you represent multiple different points of view, right? You're not just like racism bad, right? It's there is, there are, I should say, theoretically acceptable ways of depicting Asian anti-Asian racism on screen, I would argue. Right. And so the question is, does Licorice Pizza pull this off? Uh, I'll describe my reaction watching the movie Mm. and then the subsequent reaction to everything that happened afterwards is I watched the movie and I actually thought the movie was incredible. Like I really loved it. Uh, I I thought I, I had just finished seeing Ghostbusters Afterlife, uh, which I really did not appreciate. And I thought was so derivative and felt so beholden to nostalgia. And then I watched Licorice Pizza, which was obviously very nostalgic as well, but felt like a fresh jolt of originality by comparison. It's very episodic. It's very shaggy, as you say. But there were scenes and moments from it that really were thrilling, like, you know, the truck going downhill scene. I was just like, that's incredible. I've never seen anything like that before, you know? And so I really enjoyed the movie. And those scenes came up. Uh, And the first one happened, and you heard a little bit of it in that clip. And it's like, okay, this guy is speaking with a super exaggerated accent. And a couple things. One is that the audience around me laughed, not too hard, but just like there there was a healthy, hearty laughter in the audience when it happened. I think some of it was nervous laughter, Mm. but it felt bad. Because you're like, you don't know what they're laughing at. Are they laughing at the guy for being terrible? Or are they laughing because Asians are funny? Asians are a little goofy and weird. Uh, and that guy is correctly pointing it out. You just don't know. Maybe, maybe everyone is completely woke and progressive and they recognize the wrongness of it. But you just don't know. And this, these are the thoughts that go through one's head. But... When that happened, I immediately knew that there would be a follow-up, right? Like, even in the weird logic of this movie, I knew that it wasn't just going to be that one scene. I knew there probably had to be some kind of point made to it, which there kind of was. There's a follow-up that you also heard in that clip where it it is revealed he swapped out his first Japanese wife for a second one, and also that he doesn't speak Japanese at all. And that's what we learned. 
And and that was the full extent of it, right? Like that's that's the full extent of what the movie is trying to say about uh, that character. Now, or is it? Yeah. <laughs> or is well, it? And that is, I, I honestly think it's a valid question. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about that. Um, what What do you mean by that? Like, where? Well, I, I mean, I, I, yeah. the the point can be made, right? I think rather convincingly, right? That the the movie is about con men, right? It's about men who uh, have failed upwards in life and have uh, smooth talk their way into uh, better situations and into, you know, situations with women that uh, they don't necessarily deserve. And like Jerry Frick is, you know, yet another symptom of that, right? Um, do you think there are broader points around this that, I'm, that uh, I missed in my description of it? I think that they're much like how your reaction, your individual reaction to those scenes varies. I think there are varied levels of generosity in reading those scenes, but also the film overall, right? Which is a very loose, shall we say, um, uh, is a very loose story that doesn't want to over explain itself, which I think is a great quality um, in storytelling like this that can immerse you in a time and place and make you also think about the lens through which you are watching that story unfold. And one of the people that I turned to to talk to about licorice pizza, um, well, I should preface this by saying, I know that my opinion on licorice pizza, my experience of watching it, it's not the same one that everybody's going to have. It's certainly not the same reaction that every Asian American person is going to have either. And um, I know several Asian American critics whom I really, really respect and, and admire who did like the movie, who did not have as much of a problem with those scenes as many other folks did. And so I wanted to talk to them about about why, and a lot of it has to do with the generosity of reading that they give to the usage of of the accent in those scenes, and the larger point that they believe PTA is trying to make. And you're totally right about this being a story about con men, right? All the adult men that Gary and Alana encounter are exploiting or predatory in some way that you kind of hope I think my read, my personal reading is these are the men, these are the role models in fatherless Gary's life that I am hoping he does not grow up to be like, right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How that is achieved, how the, how the Jerry Frick character is, uh, plays into that. That is up to, I think, personal interpretation of, is that as balanced as the, you know, Bradley Cooper, Sean Penn characters, um, is it the same kind of point if you're making it with racism? Or are you using Asian women characters whose voices, whose words are not translated to your default English speaking audience? Are you using those characters? Have you created those characters as props to make a point? by creating them for the purpose of of absorbing of being the 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 recipients of a racist treatment. Yeah. And I think to me it's not it's not really a very black and white um uh, it's it's not a very black and white um debate because there's so many different ways in which even Jerry Frick is treating his his wives. There's so many different ways that you can um, interpret what is shown on screen in those few scenes, uh, and choose choose to um, add even like your understanding of like a glance or a, a, a an expression on somebody's face in the room, and and how much you choose to um, factor that into how you read. The, the film overall. So to me, it's a really fascinating um, example of so much artistic ambu- ambiguity that it is hard to definitively say what the intention exactly was, or if that intention was then executed as, as it was meant to be received. 
So when I watched the movie, I really loved it. And I also felt like I had to share some of my personal reaction to it. And, you know, this is kind of the thing, Jen, that I think you may experience on occasion, which is that um, I I hate to generalize, um, but I think for many Asian Americans, the the concept of the model minority myth, which like obviously has been deployed in ways uh, that are reprehensible in the past, but like it's something that at least for part of my life, I was aware of in a non uh, weaponized way is this idea that like Asian Americans, you know, they, uh, they put their head down, they keep working and they don't make too much of a fuss. They don't like attract too much attention. And, that you know certainly in the 80s and 90s when i was growing up like that was kind of certainly the the sort of uh style or school of thought that my parents adhered to you know they my my parents grasp of english is fairly elementary they don't engage in politics or anything like that and so when i watch a movie like this my I- inclination is just shut the fuck up like mm-hmm. don't say anything there's no need to wade into any controversy about it, any of this topic that's my first reaction. My you mean, second reaction. You mean, it, you mean uh, meaning you're, that's what you're telling yourself? That's what I'm telling myself. Mm. Like, just don't say anything, David Chen. Like, you know, it, it's, it's no one, like, no, there's nothing to be gained by like voicing your concerns about this topic. Well, especially if you've done it as you have plenty of times in the past, and it's exhausting to keep <laughs> trying and trying and trying. Right. Um, and, and well, the problem, in my opinion, is like there is no real room for nuance on the on the internet. Mm. And so, uh, but the, my second reaction is, if you don't, David Chen, you know who else is going to? And there are other people that are going to, you know, and they're in, quoted in this article. Um, but there's not like a ton of them, in my opinion. You know, there there are some, uh, but there's not like a ton of them. And so my my second reaction is, if you don't say something about this, like. Uh, maybe not that many other people will. And so maybe you have something of value to contribute. So when I first saw the movie, I tweeted about my own personal reaction. I didn't say the movie is bad. I didn't say Paul Thomas Anderson shouldn't have done this shit. I was just like, hey, it made me feel shitty. And I might point out, like, your tweet about it was not necessarily directly about the movie, right? It's about your experience. It could have been just me. This is is, uh, about me. This is about my own personal reaction. This is about the specific audience I saw it with, you know, doesn't even necessarily uh, sort of make a point about what's inherent to the film. And that sentiment, not necessarily my tweet, but certainly uh, people expressing viewpoints similar to mine got so sort of viciously attacked in the weeks to come that you know, I have a kind of anti-authoritarian, you know, sort of contrarian streak in me. And it just enraged me further. Like, it, it made me feel like, okay, like, I was originally just going to be, like, light touch on this. You know, don't say anything. Just be, you know, like, send out this tweet and then not again. And then the extreme negative reaction, which I think can be characterized essentially by by saying both, number one, you're too dumb to understand what the movie is trying to say. And, or number two, this is a brilliant writer director and like, you're nothing. And how dare you question his wisdom in telling the story. That is kind of like the briefly summarizing what the arguments against that point of view have been. Um, and please correct me if I'm mischaracterizing Jen, but no, I would uh, agree with that. That yeah, seemed to and, be the, the kinds of responses. Right. And so, it was so viciously attacked that it kind of made me feel like I need to like dig into this further. And then of course there was PTA's response, which is, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson, a man I have idolized worshiped in many ways for many years. Um, Boogie nights was like dazzling to me. I watched that movie so many times and I've grown to appreciate all of his films so much. And when Eric Cohn asked him the question about, you know, how you think this is going to be perceived. I found his response so lacking, so devoid of any kind of deep thought about the matter 
that it it really soured me on not only the film but also him as a writer director. And so that has been my overall journey with the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, it's been saw the movie, loved it. Hey, this scene made me feel bad slash weird. And then I felt like many people on the internet were being complete assholes about it. And then PTA not being super thoughtful about it. And um, I found the whole thing to be a real bummer, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. a real thing where like it it took a phenomenon where it took this thing where I I quite enjoyed this movie. And I was like, hey, maybe you just want to reconsider this. Not even saying it's bad. Just maybe think about this a little bit, you know, and that nuance being attacked so directly and repeatedly that it, I, I just found the whole thing so discouraging and dispiriting. Okay. I'm kind I of would agree with, yeah, No, I would agree with all of that. Um, personally speaking, from my experience, watching the discourse, the hashtag discourse unfold over the course of several award season months, a very, very, very successful award season campaign for Licorice Pizza, where PTA was actually asked early on by... Kyle Buchanan of the New York Times, one of the very, very few entertainment journalists who even bothered to ask even one question about these scenes. The other, one of the other ones being Eric Cohn many months later. But disappointment is something that I have felt really, really strongly throughout the journey of watching this film <laughs> and being a bystander to the discourse because like, I'm just so exhausted uh, on so many levels, as so many people are, but especially having tried to be vocal in the past about previous Hollywood depictions of right. Asian or Asian American characters. Jenny um, Amato has written very well about the depiction of Bruce Lee in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as an example, and you, you should check that article out as well. But oh, yeah, I'm not even, I wasn't thinking, yes, Once Upon a Time <laughs> in Hollywood, which is like, what, 2019? <laughs> and two award season cycles ago, but even even I'm talking about ghosts in the shell, and mm. I'm talking about um, I'm talking about um, let's see, ghosts in the shell, Wes Anderson, another Anderson, Isle of Dogs, which I had a very vocal objection to, and felt very alone in even mm. questioning, even wanting to to discuss further. In the film world. That, and that's so the thing been... that is so discouraging is it's not like you are standing on the corner screaming like licorice pizza is racist. You're not, you know, you're not even being particularly strident or anything with the viewpoint. You're just saying, hey, um, this made certain people feel a certain way. Like, can we talk about this? Can we like interrogate this? Is this uh is this acceptable? Is it not acceptable? You know, what are the parameters under which it might be acceptable? But like there is seemingly no room for that conversation online. Well, exactly. It's like, especially in the last, I would say, five years, being in the film criticism, film journalism community has been very disappointing to see how lonely the the few critics of color that are in film criticism, the, the few critics from marginalized communities have often been the the lone voices speaking out, pointing out things that are perhaps questionable in in the very least deserve deserve nuanced conversation and analysis. Um, another example is uh, the great writer Roxana Haddadi at Vulture, who wrote quite a bit about Dune. There's an article if you yeah. should look up. Dune has a desert problem. And Roxana, I think, very eloquently puts that that argument in a way that is uh, the argument that that calls into question how much Dune, the movies, which won how many Oscars, by the way? Um, I think ex- like six, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, so, but, but a bunch of Oscars. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So that's one that um, I would recommend. But it's just one example of. Marginalized critics and journalists often feeling disappointed, but very alone in even trying to start conversations. And that is certainly how it felt um, this whole journey with Licorice Pizza. So Kyle Buchanan asked Paul Thomas Anderson, 
um, in November. And he had a very, he had his, the first of his several disappointing answers. But throughout the award season, neither Paul Thomas Anderson nor his stars nor anybody else really involved in the film were asked about this by anybody else. And it, it's, that is what is the most, I would say, it's it's disheartening to, to see our peers just be so incurious about the one one aspect of this movie that is being so celebrated that might be a little bit harder to parse and might require a, a, an actual nuanced conversation. And I think, like I, I thought, as you were describing, you know, the sense of exhaustion and the sense of really weighing whether or not you even write one tweet, you know, even putting yourself out there in the time that we are in right now for Asian Americans in this country, watching this wave of violence happen and often feeling like the only people pointing it out are Asian Americans. And it's very frustrating, but it's also like saddening. Yeah. Agreed completely. But let's talk a little bit about some of the points made in your article, right? Because as I mentioned earlier, I don't think it's always the case that you should not show racism in a movie, right? Like I think a case can be made for showing anti-Asian racism in a movie. Um, but there are different ways to go about it and there are ways in which it's uh, can be good and bad. There are ways in which it can accomplish its objective and not. Uh, one of the points that you make here in the article uh, is from Nancy Wong Yoon, uh, former guest of this podcast. You, uh, you write, quote, there's such a thing as being too subtle in depicting racism without also depicting consequences or addressing it elsewhere in the film, <coughs> argues Nancy, uh, sociologist Nancy Wong Yoon author of Real Inequality, Hollywood Actors and Racism. And then you quote her saying, the argument is that those offended are just people who were not reading it right, but there's no context. There's no repercussions. There's no discussion. You don't even understand what the women are saying. They might be saying, fuck you, but we don't even understand that. It's too subtle for people to say, oh, well, he's racist and it's terrible. And that's what's happening in this scene, end quote. I think that's a great point. I think that if... It is too subtle. You give, like, I would argue if it's too subtle, you give people in some ways kind of permission to laugh at it or celebrate it or go along with it. I think a lot of people would argue there's no way it's too subtle. Everyone thinks like, no, it's it's mm -hmm. very clearly uh, all the people online that, you know, have been reacting to, you know, this article and, and my tweets or whatever would say like, it's definitely not too subtle. Right. But I guess I, I wanted to ask you, Jen Yamato, like, are there instances in which you've seen it anti-Asian racism depicted that you feel like that was a really good depiction that served its purpose. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure I can really answer that question, but a recent example comes to mind in the major motion picture, the Batman, which <laughs> also prompted um, some, some really, I wouldn't say the same response, but, but I know fellow Asian American film writers that, that I know in my life who are friends of mine were really upset by the sight of one of, I, I honestly think there's only two, maybe two Asian characters, side characters, total side characters without names really, or maybe barely speaking lines at that in that entire movie. Yes. And um, obviously it's one of them is very prominently being terrorized on a subway on a subway at a subway yeah. station in the beginning of that film. And um, that's where I feel like the context comes in the, the greater outside world that you bring into the theater with you um, really does factor in differently. If you are a member of a community that is under attack and if you see iconography or images or or echoes of of those attacks echoed on screen without repercussion and if somebody if people in the theater like it was flicker speeds are laughing at that as well yeah. so i think something that is lost to a lot of defenders of the film 
who argue that, you know, people, other people just aren't good at media literacy or can't really tell the, the nuance that is, the subtlety that is in the scene. Um, I think that's sort of ignoring the reality that we all bring our subjective real world experiences and feelings and selves into a theater. And for a lot of people going into licorice pizza, what they saw in those Jerry Frick scenes reminded them very painfully of what they were seeing in news headlines Mm -hmm. or what they had experienced themselves directly. I think I don't know that Licorice Pizza needed to have a scene where, you know, Gary Valentine is like, hey, Jerry Frick, that's wrong. You right. shouldn't have done that. You know, I, like I, I would I'm inclined. I, I agree with you. I don't think it needs this like this signaling of, yes, racism is uh, obviously bad people. But that's not to say that that the scenes might have been might have landed differently if they were handled slightly differently. And uh, as an example, oh, sorry, go ahead, yes. go ahead, Jen. Yeah. Oh, no, please. Well, as an example, um, you could have done the exact same scenes, but without him doing the racist caricature accent. Like, you could have had those scenes play out without that accent and still made the exact same point, right? Um, oh, you, you would, mean you as would... in Jerry Frick translating, quote unquote, translating for his right, right. wife's you, you could have just shown him with, uh, these women, like just the fact that he kind of swapped one woman out for the uh, for the other, mm-hmm. um, and the fact that he's kind of uh, doesn't know Japanese or anything about the culture, and he, like there, there's a way to convey it without showing the caricatured accent. I would argue, mm-hmm. um, but that this movie chose not to take that path, right? Um, one of so, the, one of the yeah, writers yeah. that I spoke with for my story was Jen Fang, who is founder of the. Asian American feminist blog Reappropriate, who has been doing a lot of work for a long time in this space of really trying to to start the con- to have these conversations um, around representation and specific to Asian American representation in media and, and culture. And Jen made a really good point uh, when I spoke with, with for, for this story that. Not only are so many Asian Americans going into the theater with uh, with the specter of very real anti-Asian violence in the world weighing on their shoulders and in their minds, but the way that the two Japanese female characters in these scenes are treated, not just by Jerry Frick, but by the film, yeah. also echoes this long, long, long legacy of Hollywood films, American films relegating Asian American women or Asian characters, or really a lot of different marginalized communities to the the sidelines to to reduce to props or window dressing to advance the story of a, a white character. Yeah. And that is, I think you talk about media literacy, you have to you have to like talk about media history as well. Yeah. Uh, totally agreed. And I really appreciated her comments in the piece. I think I guess where I'm landing on this is that there is two extremes of this, right? One is just depicting the racism with zero point at all other than for a cheap laugh or as a plot device. I do think this movie is is better than that because there is arguably a point to it. But, you know, on the other end, there's like an extremely moralizing way to do it where, like I said, you have, you know, Gary Valentine or someone else um, say that it's wrong or you have someone like, you know, cave Jerry Frick's head in because he's a racist. Like, you know, there's there's different ways you can do it. And on one, you know, one side, you don't comment on it at all. On the other side, you comment on it too heavy handedly. It's a tough uh, mark to hit. But Absolutely. I actually also don't think it's wrong that it's a tough mark to hit, you know, because I think you're dealing with very loaded, upsetting images and sounds, and the bar should be high. Like, if you're going to play around with racism, the bar should be, the standard should be high for you to do it correctly. I absolutely agree with that. And to me, that's one of the persistent points of, of all of the, these conversations is 
if PTA wants to employ racism within a scene to make a point that is relevant to the larger story that he's telling, I I don't want to be somebody who polices art. You know, I don't yes. I don't advocate for that. And a lot of people don't who who have a problem with these scenes aren't saying that either. But it's exactly as you say, for especially a white filmmaker in 2021 to be I don't want to say playing around with racism, but employing employing racism against non-white characters to make a point. They could take fair. They they could and arguably should take extra care to make sure that the people in the audience watching this movie who might identify more with those women than with the buffoonish white men in the scene that those people don't feel further marginalized as they're sitting in the theater. Cause I don't think, I don't believe that that was PTA's intention for sure. Mm-hmm. But you know, there's another really very good point. I think that Michelle Sugihara of Cape shared for this story, which is that there's a distinction between intent and impact. Mm-hmm. There is PTA's intent, which if he's not going to explain it very eloquently when he is on the few occasions that any journalist actually ask him about it, or if he prefers not to explain his intention as he is known to be, you know, and, and that is his prerogative as an artist. And I think honestly, that is a lot of the reason why a lot of people are fans of his because he doesn't over explain himself. He does want to, to let the text be out in the world for his audience, but Michelle Sugihara's point is there's intent and there is impact and to ignore the impact that those scenes had on certain members in the audience is what has made PTA's responses so frustrating. Yeah. And I'd also argue that Paul Thomas Anderson's record on race is like not great. You know, I don't find his movies to have a ton of incisive commentary about America's history with race personally. Uh, and so for him to kind of wade into this it, it, and all his responses afterwards, just reinforce the idea to me that he's not particularly thoughtful about how he deploys it, um, which I, I do think is wrong. I think, I think if you are going to, as we discussed, deploy racism, you do need to be extra thoughtful about it, mm-hmm. particularly given all the stuff that is happening in America right now. I did just, I did also want to bring up an example of, uh, anti-Asian racism that I thought was well handled, hmm. which was in the HBO Max original series Peacemaker. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you had a chance to see this. I show. did. Yeah, and you know, I don't know that there's a quote-unquote right way of doing racism, um, but it to me felt like they were making an effort in this show. Um, p- possibly even too much. Like they, I think they might have even gone too much on the didactic side. Yeah, to be honest with you, but I don't mind it. I would rather you be too didactic than the other way, which and is what this movie ended up with. Of course, right? you're you're talking about not just the character judo master, right? And but there, basically, the, there's a white supremacist the, character in the show played by Robert Patrick, and on numerous and there's also an Asian detective, Detective yes. Song, and there are multiple occasions uh, during which you know Robert Patrick makes a racist comment against uh, Detective Song. And every instance in which it occurs is called out. And it, not only called out, but like they try to actually make a joke about it. They try to make it funny. And most of the time I laughed. And it's challenged by that detective character directly back to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, But most importantly, there are actual Asian characters in the show that yes. take actions that impact the plot, right? Like, uh, that's another way of showing that, like, you know... Uh, of showing a more well-rounded picture of Asians than just they're the butt of jokes. But as you say, that show overall, if you look at what it's trying to do, it's obviously trying to confront white supremacy and racism in within its, its characters. So it's, it's obviously more intent on that being the point. Yes. Whereas licorice pizza really does not feel like um, (laughs) racism is the, any part of the point, but rather one or, or of even the many confronting, methods. Or, or arguably even confronting whatever its version of evil is. You know, like, hmm. it, I feel like it is a smooth cruise through, you know, all these 
this setting in which there happens to be racism and there happens to be homophobia and there happens to be all these other things happening. And it, it doesn't really, um, it doesn't do that much moralizing around it. It lets the audience make the decision about how they feel about it. Um, and for the most part, I actually think it succeeds, but maybe when it comes to this anti-Asian racism, it didn't quite hit the mark. Well, I think of uh, a couple of um, additional voices to, to point to regarding licorice pizza. One is the film critic, Ryan Swen, who is um, I think a really, a really fantastic um, critic that more people should be reading. And I talked to Ryan about licorice pizza because Ryan has um, a much more generous reading and appreciation for the film. Um, Ryan suggests that, I mean, I think he acknowledges that these films quote walk or this film walks the finest tightrope. And he points to not just the two scenes in question that we're talking about with John Michael Higgins, but even the scene where Alana runs into a waitress she knows in the, in the, in the ladies room of the Mikado to, to Ryan that adds dimension it, it adds information to our understanding of john michael higgins character of, of of jerry frick and how he conducts his business and what what is actually important to him in his business um the orient the orientalizing aspects of his of his business are much more important than actual authenticity and so i thought that was a really interesting uh point to make because it is it is in the camp of, you know, read these scenes really closely. But in order to read those scenes for a lot of people, you have to not be, you know, upset. Yeah, you, triggered you know? at that it, moment yes. in time. Yeah. Um, and then another another um, opinion that I was thinking about a lot was from the writer Molly Lambert, who tweeted her thoughts on licorice pizza and saying, I have reached my final galaxy brain licorice pizza take, which is that it's a movie about fetishization, PTA's fetishization of the Jewish Valley girls he grew up around. And that's where the Mikado scene with the guy who fetishizes Japanese women fits in. And I, I do think that that is probably, I mean, that aligns with what I would assume the intention is. Um, the question is, did the execution succeed? And I think that's one of the many, the many elements that people just cannot agree on and will not agree on because everybody has their different read on it, and are, people are, are are personally affected very differently. And I think, I think that's fair. I think it's fair for there to be all these different experiences and readings. Totally. And I, I think what you and I have found very discouraging is that it seems like we're not even allowed to have the conversation or have a conflicting opinion, mm -hmm, right? Without, mm -hmm. without our very competence, um, our very nature being questioned, you know? Mm. Uh, and that's very discouraging. I'm curious, Jen, uh, what has been the response to the article? I, I, mm. I'm very grateful for this article and I'm very grateful for all of Jen Yamato's work over at the LA Times. I find it so thoughtful and nuanced and, um, and that's really all I'm looking for is, you know, somebody who's considering different angles before they come to their own opinion. Um, what has been the reaction to the piece? I, I would say mostly um, in a grant, but mostly from other Asian Americans. Um, I, I don't know what people who read it and didn't uh, tweet about it think, or people who read it and didn't send me angry hate mail uh, <laughs> emails think, but I did get a handful of those. Um, and it's not the first time, almost every single time that I write about anything remotely related to identity, um, or racism in film in the LA times, I will get like clockwork, very angry, dismissive emails, uh, some more offensive than others. Um, but you know, I, I think it's really interesting also that, I felt like not everybody who had an opinion felt comfortable expressing it. Mm -hmm. Because of all the dynamics we've already described. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even the, I mean, there's even debate over whether or not 
it's fair to draw any correlation between the rise in anti-Asian hate crimes and in America and uh, one's reaction to this film. And again, I feel like that is very subjective how much one is affected by literally anything in the world and how that then influences their experience of a film or their reading of a film. So then that comes back around to PTA's responses. And, you know, it's, I think there's, this is a, an unusual case there because there's so many movies that do this, right. That just very casually fire off some racism or some bigotry of either in a joke or in a casual stereotype. Um, so many of those movies ha- we see all the time um, that don't get called out that don't trigger people quite so much. But the difference is this was a heralded award season movie that earned three nominations, Oscar nominations. And I I do want to point out that the resurgence in the conversation, which many, many people tried to to have earlier in the season, November, December, um, the resurgence happened because William Yu, I believe was the original poster, tweeted uh, the supercut of those scenes. And I think a lot of people for the first time really watched it that way and saw it that way and started engaging with the conversation again in that way. Um, But Rebecca Sun at The Hollywood Reporter wrote about these scenes back in December, you know? And Wilson Wong at NBC wrote about it in November. Yeah, I... uh... It, it was fascinating to observe the reaction because I, I obviously had tweeted about it and been getting reactions for months about, you know, and uh, uh, both in support and against my, just my basic mm. personal reaction to mm-hmm. the movie. Not even saying the movie's bad, just being like, hey, here, here's my reaction. And like, it's, it, you know, it's so sad that I can't, I feel like it's so sad that I can't even say, hey, here's the thing that made me feel bad. And I, I don't know how I feel about it yet. Can I share that with you? And everyone being like, no, shut the fuck up. Right. Like, that's sad. You know, it's, it bums me out. Um, well, I would ask you, you know, Twitter is <laughs> Twitter is many things, but a place for a nuanced conversation with strangers is not at the top of the list of what agreed. Twitter is. So how did the reactions to your tweet about the laughter that you heard in theater at Licorice Pizza, how did the reactions to your tweet compare to actual conversations you had with actual real people in real life? Um, well, th- that's what I was going to, I think I was, I was getting at that is that I think a lot of people just didn't see the movie. Like a lot of people I knew didn't see the movie, you know, mm. because, um, PTA had his like, uh, sort of s- platformed rollout for walling it. I don't know what he did to release the movie, but like, it wasn't until extremely recently that people could actually see the movie. And so what was fascinating to me was uh, you know, I tweeted about it and some people expressed their like point of view and they're like, hey, you know, sorry, you felt that way, David, that sucks, whatever. Then they actually saw the scenes when they were tweeted out mm-hmm. in the clip that we played earlier. And that's when people were like actually genuinely horrified. You know, like I, I, I there was a whole round of reaction that people were like, oh, my gosh, like I had no idea it was actually this horrible, you know. Um, and so that was fascinating to witness. I, well. I just want to point out that PTA did not. <laughs> By his bootstraps, released this movie, but on his own <laughs> in a handful of theaters, and then, you know, scratch and scrap his way to three Oscar nominations. This was a movie produced by MGM that was released by United Artists that had a whole award season campaign, which always costs a lot of money behind it. And there were, I keep harping on this maybe too much, but it's something that irks me. Um, There were so many other awards and film journalists who had an audience with PTA and chose not to even bring this up. And that is what personally, as a journalist, hurts me. Mm -hmm. Um, It hurts me to see peers of mine not even think this is worthy of conversation when this is one of the most interesting aspects I would argue of this film. Mm-hmm. And um, I would note that multiple requests for comment 
for my article for PTA to either comment or talk with me directly were, I don't want to say unanswered. Declined? Declined. They were, what's the equivalent of being ghosted? I requested, <laughs> I I had received, I received acknowledgement of my request and then just like crickets. So, mm. you know, there are ample opportunities for him, for PTA or literally anybody with the film to, to engage in this conversation and the choices were made to simply not. Yeah. I, I understand why that, that could be discouraging. And I think that, uh, first of all, yeah, good point about him not forewalling this. Uh, what, the point I was making was that it was in limited release for a very long time. Like, mm-hmm. I think I saw mm-hmm. it in like late November, early December, if I recall correctly, or something like that. And, you know, by late January, you still could not easily access the film, as far as I, I recall. Um, so that's all I was nodding at. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, mm-hmm. it, it obviously did have a good, good awards campaign. That's why it was nominated. Um, I would. And. Um, Sorry. Nope. I was going to say, there's one other voice that I included in my story that I found quite fascinating. And that was an anonymous Oscar voter that I talked to. Mm-hmm. Uh, an Oscar voter who is Asian American, who actually quite liked the film when they first watched it. And were thinking, they were thinking of voting for Licorice Pizza. And then PTA gave those interviews to New York Times and IndieWire. And his responses so disappointed them. That said, they told me that they didn't have a problem with the Jerry Frick character or scenes because they had experiences directly with white buffoons just like him in their real life, including recently on the awards campaign trail. So (laughs) to this Academy voter, they thought, yeah, this guy, this guy exists. This guy is real because I've met him many times. Mm-hmm. And even my personal, uh, oh, and, and so that voter ended up, I think, voting for CODA instead um, and dropped the, this film way down uh, their ballot um, because of PTA's responses. Um, and even as I was writing this this story and working on this story, the week that I was writing this story, I was in public two separate times on two different days um, in spaces that I felt like my Asian-ness was not conspicuous necessarily, shall I say. It was not like a thing until one person at karaoke, which Dave, you know, and some people out there know, that's my safe space. That's my... Mm-hmm paradise yes one person a stranger at karaoke who is white um videotaped me singing and very very charmingly and drunkenly wanted to post it to their facebook or to share it and i was like no that's all right i don't don't need that and then they took me aside and they said are you here legally (laughs) which is the first time i've ever gotten that question and i honestly didn't know how to respond Anyway, the second instance in that same week that I was working on this story, oh I was my at gosh, you know, <laughs> Is this like a friend? That's awful. That's no, terrible. it was not a friend. It was a stranger. Oh, I see, I see. An older stranger who I thought we were vibing at karaoke, you know, like you do. <laughs> um, and then yeah. the second instance in the very same week, I was at Universal Studios Hollywood in the VIP brunch area, which I was there because uh, a friend took me there. And they have these character actors who walk around to interact with, you know, the, the yeah. people as they have their lunch. Like dressed in costumes and dressed stuff? Dressed in costumes. And one, the character actor who made the rounds, uh, came to our table, did some banter in character with two of my friends at our table who are, and I happen to be the only non-white person at our table. The character actor did some banter with two of my friends and turned to me and said, where are you from originally? And I don't know about you, Dave, but when I get this question nowadays, I just like brace. I brace. Like, <laughs> and then I go, I run through all the possible ways in my mind that I could choose to answer that question. And then I take a deep breath and I try to, I try to exercise patience. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and okay, I'll just say this is a guy dressed as Dracula <laughs> at Universal Studios who goes up to me while I'm trying to eat lunch. Maybe it was just so he could say Transylvania, Jen. What do you think? Well, I'll tell you. I'll just. This is the first. This is your. This is your scoop that you get from me. Yeah. Universal Studios Dracula turns to me and goes, where are you from originally? And I take a deep breath and I say, California. And he goes, no, I mean, like, where are you from originally? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like your bloodline. Because I think he was teeing up like a bad Mm -hmm. vampire pun. Sure, sure. But I have gotten this question so many times (laughs) that I am exhausted by it. And I don't have any more patience for it. And... Honestly, I just like, I was so tired and I just gave up and I was like, even here, even here, I guess. And he goes, <laughs> he doesn't let it drop. He goes, what do you mean even here? And then he goes, you know, like I'm from Romania. Anyway. It seemed, it seemed like just a vampire asking an innocuous question, Jen, you know? Right, so. right, right. <laughs> it was, you know, and these are very microaggressions that. Uh, pale in comparison <laughs> to the worst that so many people, so many other people have to endure. And um, that's not to say, you know, woe is me, but it was just a real reminder as yeah. I was working on this story. Uh, it just really brought a lot of these things vividly to life in my, in my life, in my experience. Here, here's kind of my takeaway as uh, as we're kind of summing up this whole conversation mm. is i feel like it, as i think about it it is kind of a narrow target i want people to hit you know um it's a narrow target it's like you can show racism and and show characters being racist and whatnot in your movie but like uh ideally it's not too moralizing ideally it's not uh, to accepting of it, uh, I, ideally, it doesn't let them off the hook. You know that that's kind of that's what I am looking for in my art. Those are the kinds of stories I am looking for. And I also think in your story that you said just now, we are looking for people to recognize us as Asian people, but also not as other. Mm. Do you know? Like mm. y- you don't want people to think that you are white or that your race is meaningless, mm-hmm. but you also don't want people to think that your race separates you and makes you alien and other to them. Um, let me know if I'm misinterpreting, but that, and that's kind of like mm-hmm. what I think many of us want is like, we want to be recognized as like having a, a distinct heritage, but we also don't want to be viewed as not American or as not from here. And that, that is a narrow target, I think for people, but <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a target I feel okay asking for. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, what do you think? I, I th- n- whether or not it's too narrow is the question, right? Mm-hmm. Like, are we asking for so much for mm-hmm. a veteran, very acclaimed filmmaker who um, is thought of as very very smart and sensitive yeah, and a genius, a, a genius, a genius even the master, as it were. Exactly. Is it like it's PTA? I I I don't know what I expected personally, but um, I think because it's PTA, that has complicated the conversation for a lot of people. Indeed, indeed. I, I think we expected more. We expected more, uh, and we can leave it at that. In fairness, I expect more from journalists as well. I expect more from human beings on the internet. You know. But that's another, that's a bigger question. That's a bigger problem. Can I, I, I want to probe on this just a little bit more, you know, because I understand what it is like to be disappointed by one's colleagues. It happens literally all the time. No, I mean, I, I can re- relate with what you're saying and I feel bad about it. I guess I am curious, like, are there any comparable things where you feel like uh, journalists have uh, taken filmmakers to task or do you I'm, think I'm it's s- kind of just, yeah. oh it's interesting because maybe not filmmakers but there is a recent example of you know quote unquote film twitter rallying behind the first few asian american voices to to sound the alarm and support them and that is turning red mm. 
It's the true. Very yeah. dismissive review that was posted from Cinema Blend. Yes, that's right. Of turning Pe- red. People descended upon it with the fury of a thousand suns when that review was published. That's true. And I mean, we, you and I have both seen this happen so many times that I, without that sort of wider community response um, or inter community response, even that I, I always like, I never expect that to happen, you know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but that was, that I was, was pleasantly nice. surprised, that was, honestly. That was nice. And it was also like, the response was so <laughs> loud. I was like, I almost felt bad for the guy that wrote it. You know what I mean? Like um, somebody wrote a very dismissive review of turning red and like everyone shit all over it so badly that they had to take the review down. Um, and I was like, wow, that's, I'm, gl- I'm glad, but also like, you know, as, as you said, you know, where was this energy during other controversies, right? Well, and by the same token, where is any of our energy for other marginalized communities to, to which we do not belong when similar things happen um, that cause pain to, to them, to their members? Yeah. Um, it makes me think about that. It, it, it certainly is not relegated to the Asian American community or, or, or film Twitter. Yeah. Um, but also it's probably easier to go after some guy from cinema blend than PT Anderson, you know, like it, oh, there's going to be less, there's going to be less masses telling you you're stupid. Well, I mean, if it's, you, it's like apples and oranges comparing the turning red review to olive <laughs> licorice pizza and the awards <laughs> campaign for it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But one, yeah, I, you can't compare it uh, exactly for obvious reasons, but um, I think with one case, it was very, it was much less ambiguous. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Both intention right. and impact. Right. You're talking about the Cinema Blend review. It's very like clear, <laughs> yeah. clear cut that that was a, a bad review, right? Yes. Yeah, and yeah. Um, the ambiguity, there's, there's so many different elements to the licorice pizza conversation that make it so much harder to, for the conversation to, to exist, to be nuanced and also respect to risk, risk, what is the word I'm looking for? Um, to be, to be, for the conversation to be, to be had between people who disagree with each other respectfully. Mm-hmm. And civil, and and that's I don't know. It's I hope that that's changing. I hope that we pay more attention when people call out these things that that they have a very different personal experience of. Um, but I'm really grateful to all of the people that spoke with me for my story, and all of the journalists who did write about licorice pizza and did call this into question before I even wrote my story. Um, everybody who tweeted about it um, and talked about it and tried to say, hey, this needs, this deserves more attention. We need to talk about this. Yeah. I think, Jen, you and I are just trying to get people to be more thoughtful about it. That's kind of my objective, at least. And you're doing it in a much more, I mean, I'm doing it by having these podcast conversations with folks like you and you're doing it by... Um, writing these extremely nuanced articles at LA Times. Um, and I'm very grateful for them. So I'm grateful for you chatting with me today, Jen. This has been a very purifying conversation. And hopefully you were able to exercise some demons as well. Well, I am very grateful for this to be potentially the last conversation <laughs> that both of us have to have about this movie. Um, but uh, by the same token, I hope that Paul Thomas Anderson considers you know, being more transparent at some point in the future about this film, because I think it would only benefit him to be better understood. But, you know, that's just me. I'm sure I don't know if transparency don't is what feel... I'm looking for. I'm, I, I actually don't want more transparency because I'm worried <laughs> I, have, I have too much transparency and I've seen stuff I don't want to see already. <laughs> There's you also know, a fine line between, you know, demanding your artists explain themselves. Yes. And, and I, I don't want to um, advocate for that. Yeah. But um, in this case, it was impossible for me personally to ignore the pain 
of the Asian Americans that I was seeing try to use their, their voices to talk about this. And um, it was also impossible for me to ignore the fact that not every Asian American person who watches this movie or writes about it has the same opinion. So indeed. Well, grateful that you've tried to capture all that in your article. Uh, Grateful for you chatting with us here today on the podcast. Before we wrap up, I do just want to say, if you want to find more episodes of this podcast, you can go to culturallyrelevantshow.com. Email us at culturallyrelevantshow at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at crevshow, C-R-E-V-S-H-O-W. This episode was powered by Simplecast at simplecast.com. Check them out for a great podcast management analytic solution. I also want to thank all my patrons at patreon.com slash Dave Chen for making my work possible. I really appreciate it. Hope you've enjoyed the Oscars postmortem episodes this week. Jen Yamato is a film reporter and critic at the Los Angeles Times. Check out her piece, Licorice Pizza Made Asians a Punchline, and the fallout is bigger than the Oscars. Jen Yamato, thanks so much for chatting with me today. Thank you so much for having me on.